We're in uh, the book of Ecclesiastes, and if you're following in the uh, packet, we're uh, ready to begin page, uh, well, the middle of page three, we're ready to begin chapter two. <clears throat> Let's have a little bit of a review, particularly for uh, the four or five people that show up once every two or three months. <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm terrible. Ouch. I'm terrible. And then the rest of us. No, Woody, you're uh, you're the master. You're the authority. You're the you're the guru of this class. You're a straight man. Who wrote the book of Ecclesiastes? Solomon. King Solomon. We believe, uh, at least most do. I think that's the only way it makes sense. He writes this near the end of his life. He's reflecting in so many ways on. Um, the things that he's done, how he's lived his life. And uh, you know it from this book, but I'm sure you know it from your study of the Old Testament. He is named uh, the wisest man who ever lived, but certainly the way he lived his life, he did not reflect that wisdom. As a matter of fact, he's a man who reflects immense foolishness in the choices that he made. And so that's what he's reflecting on. The thesis of the book of Ecclesiastes is... Everything is vanity if there is no God. Vanity is a word that I don't think I've heard anybody use that word in a sentence in 20 years. But vanity as a, as a, as a word in English means empty, uh, without purpose, without meaning. Some translations take that Hebrew word we translate vanity and define it as meaningless or meaninglessness. Another way of looking at this, the very first day we started this several weeks ago, I drew a box on the board. And I said, Solomon is positing a thesis. If the box is closed, nothing makes sense. Now, the box is like the universe. It's the world. It's, it's, it's everything that we know. And a way of phrasing that is if there's nothing beyond the box, if there's nothing beyond the physical world, it is really hard to make sense of things. So Solomon tests that. He tests that thesis throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. Last week, we spent the entire time on verses 12 through 18, where Solomon, brilliant, sophisticated, well-educated for the ancient world, he tests it by exploring wisdom in every aspect of wisdom, and he concludes why. Everything I've learned Verse 15, I can't straighten out the things that are crooked. And what is lacking, what, what, what I found to be lacking and empty, I can't fill it up. The things that really need to be fixed, my brilliance and my wisdom can't fix it. So he reaches this conclusion. It's vanity. It's empty. Now, verse uh, 1 of chapter 2, and he really goes through the first 11 verses of chapter 2, and this, this should be very familiar to you because we live in a culture that is absolutely steeped in this. He tests the thesis by hedonism. Now, Solomon was extremely wealthy, and there was anything he wanted, he could take it. Any, I mean, anything that, it, that would in any way be 
be physical, by his wealth, sex, immorality, drink, food. He could deny himself nothing. So let's take a look at this. And um, I have in the notes, built into it, a number of places for us to stop and ask some questions. And when, when I say ask some questions, that's the sign of class participation. That means you all can help think about this because I really, uh, I really want this book to be meaningful to you. I want it to challenge you. I want it to make you feel really, really uncomfortable. Did you hear that last sentence? I want this book. Okay, <laughs> but I mean because every I've taught it now a number of times. Every time I teach it, it is it's very discomforting. It's unsettling. Because Solomon is, is uh, it's, it's just amazing. This is almost 3,000-year-old book. And you honestly think he wrote this yesterday as he was watching a bunch of Americans. Or he spent some time in London and he comes back, this is what I see. So I said to myself, verse 1, chapter 2, Come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. Now that sets us up for what he's doing. Another experiment. A another testing of his thesis. You know, I, knowledge and wisdom, that seems futile now that I, I spent a lot of time analyzing it. Ah, I bet I'll find fulfillment and purpose and meaning and pleasure. The pursuit of pleasure. Now the Greek word for that is hedonism or hedonist. In the last three decades of the 20th century, the master model of hedonism in America was Hugh Hefner. And I'm sure you don't even know who I'm talking about, but in case you don't know who he is, he was the founder of the Playboy Empire. And he made it very clear, I am founding this empire, this magazine, everything else associated with it, for one reason, to legitimize the pursuit of sexual pleasure. He reaches a conclusion, he tells us right off. This is what I concluded. It too is futility. I said of laughter, it's madness, and of pleasure, what does it accomplish? I explored with my mind how to stimulate my body <clears throat> with wine while my mind was guiding me wisely and how to take hold of folly until I could see what good there is for the sons of men to do under heaven the few years of their lives. If you look at your notes... Here Solomon explains how he went about this. He permitted his mind to be affected by wine and willfully sought a lifestyle of foolish and frivolous living. And these are the questions he poses to us. Because depending on your translation, you probably have a question mark there. Are hedonism and frivolity worthwhile? Hedonism, pleasure-seeking, and frivolity worthwhile. Can they be beneficial to me as a human? Is there a purpose to them? Now, in bold, there's ask. This is where it's time for you to reflect. Is there a place for pleasure, for, 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 for frivolity, 
if the box is not closed. Now, do you know what I mean by if the box is not closed? I mean there is a God. Is there a place for pleasure or frivolity? Is that a question for us? It is a question for you. Okay, I think there is. Sometimes we get, uh, we have stress, whether we cause it or part of our job or an illness with somebody else or something. We just tense and have stress and maybe it would be good to take a little trip, have a little break, a little vacation, uh, you know, just a little road trip, something. Uh, I, I think there would be a purpose for that. Okay. So pleasure as vacation. That's okay. How about pleasure in lots of other areas of life? It depends on what makes you have pleasure. Okay. Everybody has a different okay. point, right? Okay. Yeah. H.L. Mencken, I don't know if you know that name. He was a very famous reporter for the Baltimore Sun-Times in the early 20th century. He one time defined, he was, he was a very secular man. He detested Christianity. Christianity is that haunting thought that somewhere, someone is happy. <laughs> he defined Christianity as a bunch of stalwarts who never enjoy anything in life. True? Not true. Is that God? Is God not interested in pleasure? Is God not interested in frivolity and laughter and fun? Or is he an ogre up there in heaven on his throne with a lash and says to Gabriel, get that Christian. He's having fun. So, Hurl a lightning bolt in that. So I think the answer to this question is somewhat qualified by motive and qualified in other ways by sort of the legitimacy that scripture lends to how pleasure is developed. Okay, Jim, that sounds very esoteric and erudite. What does that mean? <laughs> you're, the, you're the professor. By objective, I would mean, I mean, if, if we, like Solomon, choose to pursue, to find satisfaction and, and uh, value and merit in life solely by driving toward pleasure, then it would be outside the bounds of okay. what I think would be acceptable. And clearly, scriptures put some guidelines around yes. um, how we live our lives mm -hmm. and what is appropriate and inappropriate. You know, for example, sex outside of marriage mm -hmm. would be outside the kind of the guidelines of what would be acceptable. So, I mean, there may be other qualifiers, but at least those two would be, I think to me, would be very important. You really, uh, you said that very well. Let's, um, let's take some of the thoughts that Jim Jim just um, laid out there. And let's, let's talk a little bit about this. Um, one form, remember, pleasure, and these are the words he uses. We translate them. Pleasure, fun, fun, frivolity. Frivol you know what I mean by frivolity? Okay. Uh, what would be some examples? Jim used the word sex. And in America today, when you hear the word sex, we think pleasure. Just almost always the synonym. Um, 
Who created sex? God did. How do you know that? I read it in the book. <laughs> okay, that's not a bad answer, but could you be a little more specific? How do, how, how do we know God created sex? Genesis 2. Genesis 2. The very first institution that God creates is marriage. Man is alone. God says that's not good. He creates woman. And then Moses has this profound commentary on what he's just recorded. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, cleave to his wife, and they shall, and the whole verb tense changes, be in the process of becoming one flesh, a one flesh union. Verse 25. And they were naked and not ashamed. Um... Is sex for pleasure? Sure. Uh, when you're with your wife in intimate moments in your bedroom, does the Holy Spirit leave the room? Now, I'm being really facetious and setting this up in a way there's no way you can answer no to the question, but the answer is no. As a matter of fact, I really believe this with all my heart, that God delights. He absolutely delights in seeing intimate intimate relations of all aspect between a husband and wife in the marriage bed. I think he delights in that because he created it. Did he create orgasm? Now I'm being your man, I can talk to you. Of course he did. He's the creator of everything that's a part of our body. But what God has said is sex and its pleasure and reproduction and all that is a part of it occurs within a set of boundaries. Does he set the boundaries? The boundaries are clear within marriage. And we are in a, we are in a culture right now, and, and I, I'm liable to offend somebody here, but we're in a culture now where the boundaries almost don't exist. I mean, they are, they're almost non-existent. There are no longer boundaries in and I mean in the culture, I don't mean in the church, I don't mean in your lives, but I'm talking about in the culture, there are no longer boundaries within marriage. Premarital sex in a typical college campus today, one of the phrases used is hookup culture. We live in a hookup culture among young adults. It is, it is pervasive, it is widespread, and it's acceptable. It's recreational sex with no commitment, with, with, with no uh, particular concern about that person one way or the other. It's recreational. It's thoroughly selfish. It's intensely self-indulgent. It has one purpose. I want to have an orgasm. And I want to have multiple orgasms in, in, in an evening with a girl or a guy from my own. And it's often associated with the consumption of alcohol or drugs. And I'm not talking about the drug addict down in the Bowery's of town. I'm talking about the kids in college campuses. They look forward to the weekend when they'll be able to drink or use cocaine and or have all kinds of sex. I'm not saying everybody does that, but that, those boundaries don't exist. Now, the institution I used to lead, that was not something we condoned on campus. We did everything we possibly could to help students see that that is not what God intends for them. Uh, it, outside of marriage, um, 
I should say, within marriage, adulterous type of thing. It's always amusing to me, the press jumps on some political or business leader who's caught in adultery, and it's so pervasive in our culture. You know, why are you singling that person out? Well, because they're a leader, and they shouldn't be acting that way. But like 70%, at least statistics tell us, of married uh, uh, married people in one way or another have been faithful, unfaithful. I don't know how they arrive at that statistic. We are now accommodating as a culture to the entire same-sex marriage. It's, it's, it's accommodated, it's legitimized, and uh, it's being legalized now. And I could go on and on. Why did God set boundaries? Say it again. To protect us. What do you mean by that? Uh, just to protect us against the, the, the ills of not living within those boundaries. <laughs> I mean, of, of, uh, in this case, whether that's disease or, or a broken relationship okay. or uh, broken families. So, uh, what gives God the right to set the boundaries? He created the act. He created it. He created us. And he created the the entire system, if you can speak it that way, the entire system of intimacy. It is his creation. It didn't evolve. It's not some product of social evolution. God created it that way. And so he has every right to say to us, now listen, I created this as, as the epitome of intimacy and communication and expressions of love between a man and a woman in a marriage relationship. And I've created it in such a way that if you step outside of that, you're going to find that's not healthy. You're going to find that's hurtful. You're going to find that that is damaging. You're going to find that that's self-destructive. Well, I don't believe that. My goodness. It's just like having a hamburger. Isn't it? Not really. Because the sexual act of loving expression and intimacy is you are pouring your whole being into that person. And you are going to find that if you do not stick within the boundaries, it's going to become very self-destructive in terms of relationships, in terms of mental health, in terms of emotions, in terms of the effect it's going to have on others. Do you see any evidence of that being the case? It is everywhere. And we, re, we define all of this, <coughs> sex and pleasure without boundaries, around the framework of rights and freedom. I have the right, I have the freedom to sleep with and do whatever I want with whomever I want at any time I want. God says, okay, I've given you the freedom. But I'm telling you, the way I've made the world and the moral framework I've set it up and so on, there, it, it's going to have an effect on you. No, it won't. I'm just, this is for me. Okay, you have the freedom to do it. But you're going to have to live with the consequences. Solomon is saying, I tested this. We'll read a little bit later on. Solomon had many wives, he had many concubines. He could take a different woman to bed every night. It would take him several years to go back to that same woman again. Very, very few leaders have ever had that kind of freedom. But he did. What are some other examples of, of pleasure and fun and frivolity? Uh, 
enough about this. Alcohol. All right. Um, now this could be a bit controversial because I don't know where you all are on that. Um, pleasure, fun, frivolity, enjoyable. The Bible does not prohibit you, you will look in vain, for finding a verse which prohibits you from having a glass of wine. You're not going to find that in the Bible. What will you find in the Bible? You're going to find in the Bible, let's put it in a real positive sense, because that's, in a sense that's an extreme, but it is clearly prohibited. It's self-control. It's temperance. So God is saying, now look, I'm, I'm giving you, I'm giving you the fruit, uh, the grapes and so on that are going to allow you to make wine, which is kind of the main thing of the of the ancient world. And when you read, if you, you go to a concordance sometime and see wine, see how many times it's referred to in the Old Testament. The incredible number of times, almost almost every single time it's referred to, it's positive. It's it's referred to as the abundance of God's blessing. That a good, rich wine is evidence of the blessing of God. Um, it's, a, it's a fascinating thing to study, but the Bible keeps saying to us again, but you enjoy this blessing under the boundary of self-control. Because if you do not follow, and this is one of the fruit of the Spirit, it's the ninth fruit of the Spirit, if you do not engage in the enjoyment of this blessing of God, it will get out of control and it will be self-destructive. Sounds like this, doesn't it? It's the same, it sounds like the same thing. That's why many people, and I think we have to be so careful we don't universalize that as a test of holiness and sanctification, many people have chosen, I'm simply going to abstain from this. Don't universalize it as a test of holiness for everybody. Some people are going to be able to enjoy a glass of wine. Some people choose not so. Neither one is more holy than the other. This is the test. Self-control. What would be another example? Golf. Golf. <laughs> oh. Could be any one of those sorts of pleasures. That, I don't remember seeing that in the Bible, but golf. Now look, we could just, you could go down a long, golf is a great example, especially in America. But I mean, you could go down a fun, uh, you know, um, what you mentioned, the vacation, and going to baseball games. I mean, you could just go on and on and on. Does God delight in seeing his image bearers enjoying the world he's created? Yes. Absolutely. And you, I mean, you study, you study some of the individuals in history who were deeply committed to the Lord. And I'm thinking, for example, in the colonial period of the Puritans. The image of the Puritans is a bunch of stuffy people who never enjoyed anything. You know, if you really study them, nothing could be further from the truth. No one enjoyed life more than they did. And I want to tell you, you study them, they really enjoyed their beer. <laughs> they really enjoyed it. And they had many, many, many children, so they knew what to do on a cold night. <laughs> and I'm not saying, I'm not, I'm not dragging this through the mud. 
I mean, and the, the fun they had in a lot of areas of life. But there is a word that my students get tired of hearing me use, but I'm going to use it here. In all of these areas, we could just make a long list. The key word for the believer in his, his or her life is balance. Keeping a balance. If your vacation is 51 weeks a year and you work one week, that's a life out of balance. That's an unhealthy life. If it, it, a, a life where your consumption of alcohol, and this is what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, where this is now controlling you, your life's out of balance. You've got a problem. If this becomes you're obsessed with this, your life's out of balance. God enables us, and this is where I think that when the box isn't closed, there is a God there is a, who is our creator, who is our redeemer. He is the key to the balance in life, to where I can enjoy all of the things that are part of my life because they're a gift from the Lord. He's trusted me with this piece of property to cut my grass and take care of it. That's enjoyable. That's fun. That's frivolity. But if I was out there every day of the week and that's all I did, the life is kind of out of balance. So it's Solomon is saying what you are what he is doing is he's making this the chief end of life. What is the chief end of life? To bring glory to God. First Corinthians chapter ten, verse thirty one. So as I enjoy the intimate moments with my wife on the marriage bed, am I bringing glory to God? Yes. If I can enjoy a glass of wine, I Peggy and I, for when I was in leadership, we just chose abstinence simply because it could be clearly understood by many believers who maybe don't see it this way. But to enjoy a glass of wine with a good steak at an Omaha restaurant, can I bring glory to God through that? Well, some Christians are going to say no. But if you got the right perspective, the answer can be yes. You know, playing a good round of golf with a group of men? Absolutely. If you play golf every single day and you're obsessed with it and that's all you do, and you're spending a fortune trying to get your handicap down to zero where you're playing scratch golf, maybe your life's a little out of bounds. If we truly see our lives, and I'm, I'm going a little beyond Solomon, but in a way I'm not, because that's where he's going to end up at chapter 12. If I see my life and everything I do in it as a child of God by faith in Christ, to where I do everything to his glory, I really believe that is the most, one of the most freeing, liberating aspects of biblical Christianity there is. To enjoy life. To enjoy it. How do I enjoy it? By exercising balance, self-control, understanding God's boundaries, because he's my creator, he's my savior, he's my Lord, and those boundaries are created for my good. And if I choose to step outside the boundaries, then he is going to let me do that, but he set up his world in such a way that the consequences then will naturally resolve. That was not a bad 
experiment in class participation. You did good. Any questions? And you had rules. You can step outside of those, but there are repercussions. And I think the same thing is what you're saying up here on the board. And God's boundaries, sometimes parental boundaries, are a bit arbitrary. But God's boundaries are never, are, are never arbitrary. But you're right. Um, God is our Heavenly Father, and He... As our creator and as a redeemer, he's saying, you have to trust me that these boundaries are for your good. So, I forget who it was. Somebody used the word protective. And that, that is really true. Those boundaries are for our good and for our protection. It is so difficult for humans to see it that way. Because every time a boundary is erected, what do you say? I don't mean you necessarily, but I mean humans. That restriction is keeping me from something. What's on the other side of the boundary? God's saying, don't worry about it. No, but what's on the other side? Maybe there's something really good over there. Would you trust me? <laughs> remember, remember when Satan goes to Eve in chapter 3 of Genesis? If you look very carefully at that, Satan tests, do you know the word, what God has said? And if you look very carefully, she misquotes God in three ways. She doesn't know his word. What does Satan then know? I've got her. So then he intensifies the question by, in effect, saying to her, by means of a rhetorical question, God's hiding something from you. He's keeping you from something. He knows that when you eat, you'll become like him, and he doesn't want that to happen. Is that true? Absolutely not. But Satan got her because he saw three mistakes she made. She does not know God's word. He had her. And men, that is what happens to you and me all the time. If we don't know what God has said, we are open. We are open to the deceptive, duplicitous, deceitful ways of the evil one. And he is very, he is a master at that. Yeah. Well, my question had more to do with boundaries. And, and, you know, God says to be fruitful. But if you decide to only have two kids, you get a vasectomy. Is that against the boundaries? Well, I have an early <laughs> meeting. I, uh, I'm going to pray and we'll go. Um, <laughs> Um, I, I, I'm going to answer it in two ways. Um, first of all, um, I believe that in giving the gift of, I'm going to call it that, the gift of sex, as well as the gift of sex, which also has as its goal reproduction, because that is one of the reasons God created. He tells that very clearly. <clears throat> That's a stewardship that he entrusts us. He trusts us with that. And um, as a part of that trust in that stewardship, which is by definition what stewardship means, he's giving us the freedom and the responsibility to make 
those choices <coughs> that he trusts us with. <clears throat> and like some of those cho- choices can be very unwise choices. Not necessarily sinful, although some can be, but make the kinds of choices. I think, and I'm not sure every Christian biblical scholar would agree with me, but I think most would. As a matter of fact, I know most would. Birth control is a part of that stewardship. Now, the methodology or the means or you know the, the, the pharmaceutical product or the procedure, whatever you use, to affect that, I think that the Bible speaks to some of that. I, my own per- perspective is abortion is not an acceptable means of birth control. Some uh, unbelievers see it very distinctly as an acceptable method of birth control. I don't think it is. But I, whatever the variety of, uh, of things you use, I think that's part of a stewardship that God trusts you with. And um, birth control, I think, is a legitimate exercise of our stewardship in that area. Another way of saying I don't think that's a sin. Now, some of the methodologies of birth control, I think, can be, depending on what you're, you're talking about. You know, because you think, you know, God made your body a certain way and like having tattoos or altering what God, is that, in his eyes, does that look poorly? I don't know why you used t- that example of tattoo. <laughs> my mom pushed that in. Okay, my well, I, but I, <laughs> I don't... Um, in and of itself, a tattoo—you know—I don't—I don't understand why people do that. But in and of itself, a tattoo I don't think is something that is necessarily displeasing to the Lord. But it's like a lot of things in our lives. What what is motivating us to get a tattoo, and what's the tattoo going to say? What's it going to look like? What's it symbolize? I mean, tattoos are powerful symbols of things, and you know. So they're the kind of things that I think we have to examine and think about. I think you have to, Jim said this a number of minutes ago, but the motives and the reasons and the objectives we have in doing those kinds of things. But in and of itself, I don't think a tattoo is sin. Um, even, you know, the, the Bible is not very specific at all in the clothing we wear. But there's a principle that is clear in Scripture. You adorn your body in such a way that you do not draw attention to yourself. That's a, that's a, that's a principle. But that's going to be understood in Latin America a lot differently than that's going to be understood in New York City or Los Angeles, California or Beijing, China. Uh, do you understand what I mean? In other words, if a woman were to come in here uh, to this room with a very tight blouse on and a miniskirt, and it stops here. Will she draw attention to herself? Well, there's not a man in this room that is not at least going to take one look at her. And I'm not in any way condemning you because I would do it too. The Bible seems to say don't take a second look. But the point for her is she is dressing in such a way to draw attention to herself. Bible seems to say that's just not a wise way to live. What does that mean? Well, does that mean I can't wear makeup? No, that's not what it means. You know what some youth leaders have done is say, well, that therefore because that Christian young girl should never wear makeup, should never have earrings, should should never 
tease her hair, should never color her hair. That's not what that that's not what that means. You have to think through and process. See, this is one of the things that is so unsettling for us. God gives us enormous freedom in the stewardship responsibilities. And he trusts us with that. And he gives us kind of broad principle guidelines. But there's always tension in that. There's always, there's always a lot of tension in that. Because you're going to look at one guy doing what he's doing and say, he shouldn't be doing that. Why? Well, because I found that when I do that, that causes this to happen in my life. But maybe that will not happen to him. You don't universalize the convictions you make about life to everyone else as a test of holiness. There's a word for that. It's legalism. But you see, that's tense. That's, there's tension there. Just tell me what to do. <laughs> Every day, give me the lists. Give me the books I shouldn't read. Give me the DVDs I shouldn't rent. Or we don't rent DVDs. What do we do with them? The Netflix thing, whatever we call it. Yeah, t- tell me the TV program. What, what should I not watch on TV? <sighs> but you know, I've, honestly, I've had people call me on that. They'll call me up, they'll email me. Should I do this? Should I do this? Should I do this? I absolutely refuse to get involved in that. Because that's telling me that person is not thinking through their stewardship responsibilities. And it's hard. Because it means in these non-moral areas where God's not specifically spoken, he's saying, you're a responsible steward. You make the wise choices. And I live consistently with them. I'm going to help you. And some people are going to be able to watch. I'm just making this up. Some people are going to be able to watch a particular television program. It has almost no effect on them. Others are going to watch the same program. Oh, my goodness, it's going to stir up all kinds of things from their past. It's going to cause them to all of a sudden relive things that were part of their sinful past in which they were addicted or enslaved or whatever, and they're going to slip right back into it. That person shouldn't watch that. Whereas another guy who's a believer can watch, doesn't even affect it. You see what I'm saying? The wise person is going to understand pleasure and fun and frivolity within the context of who they are. And that's just really, really difficult because all people want, just tell me what to do in these non-moral areas. You never have the freedom to lie. That's not what we're talking about. You never have the freedom to, to covet. You never have the freedom to take life. That's not what we're talking about. Solomon is saying, I kicked over all the chasers. I removed all the boundaries. And I just indulged. And what did he discover? If that's the end goal, to just indulge, And I'll tell you, you know this, both medical scientists and social scientists tell us that never works. And these are people who don't care about Christ. It never works. If you try that as your goal, pleasure, through drugs, you're always going to need a higher high. You can't can't stay neutral with that. They become addicted to sexual stuff, addicted to pornography. That's why pornography becomes more and more bizarre. Because the normal stuff no longer satisfies. You've got to have something more. The, the sexually promiscuous young man or the sexually promiscuous young girl, it, it, does, it doesn't work. Just once. 
You become addicted to it. Because if that is your end goal, it's never going to satisfy. You always have to have something more because you get used to you get used to what you're doing. You've got to have more to get the same kind of level of pleasure. Social scientists and 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 uh, medical uh, person say that's exactly what happens to your body. Whereas if your goal is, I seek to glorify God in everything I do, that's a different goal. Self indulgence, self indulgence, never satisfy. That's what Solomon's telling us. I indulge myself in anything I wanted, I got, I took, I grabbed, I bought. And when I was done, I realized it doesn't satisfy. Jim, what's a general approach for like a tattoo if a question, maybe another question that someone has? Uh, what are some avenues or some tools? If your teenage daughter who's 16 wants to get a tattoo, tell her you'll pay her not to get one. <laughs> which was the strategy my wife and I used. <laughs> Joanna said, she really did. She said, Dad, I want to get a tattoo. I said, well, what do you, what do you mean? She, she wanted to get a tattoo down here on her ankle. I can't remember what it was. I think it was a polar bear or something. And I said, I'll tell you what, sweetie. Uh, if you want to get it, you certainly can. Uh, I don't think that's sin if you want to get it. But I, I'm going to make a proposition to you. I'm almost positive although I can't guarantee this, but I'm almost positive that in five years you're going to regret that. And you're probably going to want to go get it burned off. And I'm telling you, honey, that is, that's painful. And it's also expensive. So I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll pay you $75 not to get one. Amazing, it worked. <laughs> it worked. You know, and here about a year or two ago, she said, Dad, I'm really glad that I took you up on that. Because I can tell you right now, Dad, I wouldn't want a tattoo on my ankle. Now, that was not the wisdom of Solomon or anything. It just came to Peggy and me because we were, you know, because kids today, that's kind of a common thing. I mean, you see those little tiny tattoos all over the place. And we were just pretty sure with Joanna because that was the way Joanna was. I mean, that, well, not is. She is. But she now, Greg has to deal with her. I don't have to deal with her. No, she's really, she's a neat kid. But, um, you know, in terms of the, the tattoo uh, issue, Fred, it, it does get back to, you know, if it's, if it's kind of a decorative, um, what do you call the stuff when you're doing your body on? Cosmetic type of, of thing. That's innocuous, I think. You know, many, many Christians do it. But it's a little bit back to what Jim, if there is a, much more involved in it, what's your objective in doing it? Why do you want to do it? What's it going to say? Where's it going to be in your body? Why do you want to do it? Are you identifying with something? Then I think you just have to really look at a lot of those very hard questions and consider the possibility it's probably wise for me not to do it. So back to the same, the, the primary governing principle. When it comes to tattoos, just be wise. Do you have the freedom to do it? Yeah. It is, I mean, in some areas, it's associated with something very demonic, but it doesn't have to be. But it's wise. Why are you doing it? What's the cost? Am I ever going to regret doing it? Because if I make the decision I don't want it anymore, that's going to be very costly and it's going to be very painful. Just think through it. But... There's no silver bullet to something like that. If you were expecting me to give a one-sentence silver bullet, there isn't. And young, young kids, young adults, young 
and even guys, uh, that's just, it's something you see them doing. And in and of itself, I don't think it's easy, but it's just wise. I always find it interesting that, that we as Christians tend to ask the question about where's the boundary out here? Mm-hmm. How far can I go? Absolutely. Instead of the other question, you know, which is which path is the most glorifying yep. to God? Exactly. And, and to be able to answer, I mean, to ask the other question instead of the first one is, I think, a wiser path. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's a very good comment. Remember when we studied 1 Corinthians chapter 10? There are three questions that you ask as you exercise your freedom and liberty. Remember what they are? Does this bring glory to God? Does this bring glory to God? Is it edifying? And is it profitable? Is it beneficial? They're the three questions you ask. And people are going to answer those questions differently. Well, we've got two verses done. Or actually, uh, uh, we've got more than that. Now, 4 through 10, and I've itemized those in your notes, and I'm going to read them. 4 through 10, Solomon just itemizes and lists the many things he did. Seeking pleasure, fun, frivolity, it's the good life, that kind of thing. I enlarged my works. I built houses for myself. I planted vineyards for myself. First Corinthians, First Kings chapter nine, First Kings chapter ten tells us what he did. I made gardens and parks for myself. I planted in, in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made ponds of water for myself, from which to irrigate a forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves. I had home-born slaves, domestic servants, another way of petting that. I possessed flocks and herds larger than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. I collected for myself silver and gold, the treasure of kings and provinces. I provided for myself male and female singers and the pleasures of men, many concubines. Then I became great and increased more than all who preceded me in Jerusalem. My wisdom also stood by me. Verse 10, the first part. All that my eyes desired, I did not refuse them. This is a man who lived an extreme self-indulgent lifestyle. Very few people can say, all that my eyes desired, I did not refuse them. Because he had the wealth, he had the power, and he had the position to take and do anything he wanted. Now, one of the things that's happened in our world today, especially in the United States, where with the Industrial Revolution and the kind of capitalism that has been the bedrock of this country, we have democratized this kind of opportunity. Do you know what I mean by that? To where a common middle-class person can do almost all of these things. All I don't know, or I know some of you, but I don't know all of you, but I would, I would almost venture to say that every one of you around this table owns property. You have a home. Some of you may have you know, a vacation home, too. But you have a home. You have property. You have a house. And some of you have maybe a little pond. or I mean, you, you've, you've, done, you've done some creative things with landscaping and so on. That's what Solomon's talking about here. Because 97.5% of people in the ancient world never had any of this. They never owned property. They were the basic economic arrangement of the ancient world was slave to master. Somewhere in the 65 to 70 percentile of people were slaves. 
So you didn't own anything. So you, you just have a very, 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 you know, we talk in the United States about the top 1%. Well, I mean, the top 1% in America, that's extreme wealth. But the common middle-class person in America, by any definition in any period of history, is wealthy. All I'm saying is what Solomon is saying here today, I don't know if we'd say a majority, it's over 50%, but it's pretty close to 50%, if not more than that, of Americans who can do the same thing. And so Solomon says, all that my eyes desired, I did not refuse them. I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure for my heart was pleased because of all my labor, and this was my reward for my labor. He indulged. In your notes, I just listed, I listed all of it. And he tested the very limits of self-indulgence. He tested that. His wealth and his power and position. So what does he conclude? Verse 11. Yes, Woody. We're too late smart. Yeah. That's a, that's a Pennsylvania Dutch sign. That's kind of like... By the time of his death, was he just really a wise person? He really understood what God's intent was and he didn't understand it at the beginning? Or he, he just disobeyed it? Ah, your last word was the key. He knew it, Woody. He didn't obey it. See, wisdom wisdom is not only knowledge. Wisdom is what do I do with the knowledge? How do I discern with discretion and understanding? How do I take what I know? Solomon was brilliant. He tells us that in the previous paragraph, which we studied last week. You can be brilliant, but if you don't use it to the glory of God, you're full. There are many PhDs in the United States that are very foolish. Very foolish. Solomon is saying, and this is why we're pretty sure he wrote it at the end of his life, he knew the truth. He knew how to apply the truth. But he didn't do it for himself. He almost bankrupt Israel with his building program. He really did. The taxation system in Israel was oppressive. So when he dies, his son Rehoboam, they go to him and say, will you reduce the taxes that your father set? You you maybe don't know. His answer was, I'm not going to reduce them. I'm going to increase them. And that's when the rebellion occurs. His kingdom is split. But that's beyond our point. Solomon, Solomon was an incredibly brilliant and wise man, but he never used it correctly. So you would say of Solomon, what word? Not wise. He was a fool. You see, um, 
Well, none of us in this room are wise, but in a very real sense, the way the Bible uses the word wisdom, you may be wiser than Solomon. Now, now, now don't be self-deprecating. You may be if you are seeking to walk in obedience with God. Solomon didn't do that. It's not till near the end of his life. So it's one of the things Solomon concludes in chapter 12 is wisdom. Wisdom. Wisdom can be defined in three areas. Or let me rephrase that. Wisdom is defined by three characteristics. Fear God. Obey his commandments because you're accountable to him. That's what he concludes. They're the last verses of the book of Ecclesiastes. And fear is worship work. Bring glory, worship, devote, be devoted to God. Obey him because you're accountable to him. That's pretty profound. There's wisdom showed up in three short, three short sentences. And, well, see, that's he, because he tested everything. He said, okay, I knew this intuitively. I saw my father live this way. But, you know, I've become very wealthy. I've become very powerful. Solomon was one of the great powers in the ancient world. His kingdom was one of the most significant kings in the ancient world in that century. Did he use it to bring glory to God? Did he use it to magnify Yahweh's name? No. He used it to magnify his own name. Queen of Sheba. She couldn't believe the story she was hearing about this king up in Jerusalem. She couldn't believe it. So what does she do? She makes the trek up there. And she stands in awe of what she saw. Solomon was not doing it to glorify the Lord. He was doing it to glorify himself. That's not wise. That's foolish. That's why God said to him, because of your father David... I will not tear the kingdom from you. But when you die, the kingdom will be split in half. It's horrible. You would not not put across Solomon's life success. You really wouldn't. Tragic. He's one of the greatest, most tragic figures in history. He had everything going for him. Verse 11, I really want to finish this. Here's his conclusion. Thus I considered all my activities which my hands had done and the labor which I had exerted, and behold, all was vanity. Striving after wind. If you chase the wind, will you ever catch it? Never. And there was no profit under the sun. I simply wrote in the notes exactly no meaning. Only pursuing wind, but never catching it. Nothing was gained under the sun. Now, we're almost out of time, but this was another opportunity to just discuss what brings meaning to all of these things. If you, if you build a pond and irrigate it and, and, and uh, build palatial homes, can you do that to the glory of God? Yes. But what's your purpose? How do we accomplish all of this? This is one of the this is one of the perplexing and I think some to some extent tension filled aspects of living in America for the Christian. There's so much prosperity, 
even though we're still in, you know, you don't see that by the stock market, but in other areas, there's still, you know, there's still significant residue from the 2008 collapse of everything. It's still hanging around. A lot of people are still affected by it. But there's still general prosperity and general... So how do I approach all of these things? Are you going to say something? No, okay. I'm waiting for the answer. How, how do how do I approach all these things? Moderation. What? Moderation. I, th I think that's one of the one of the aspects that you see in Scripture with moderation, with temperance, with self control. Is it wrong? Is it evil to have a large house? I can't find that in Scripture. Andrew? I think just having the understanding that uh, everything that God made is good, but it's fallen. And we're image bearers of God, and so we're meant to use these things in a certain way, mm. Um, mm. And, and in relational ways, and, then, mm. and things like that. And so I think, have, like, it's not exactly. Uh, objective so to speak or practical but just having that understanding of the good but following okay um, that is excellent Andrew and I have all this planned out <laughs> <laughs> fantastic uh, key some key words that we're almost out of time but I want to uh, isn't this a great race I have one We're going to have to quit, but I want to lay some things down on the table. And tomorrow we'll pick it up. Or not tomorrow. Next week. Next week. Stewardship. Good. Balance. Self-control or uh, moderation. Uh, your word, which would fit here. I'm going to start up here. You've heard me say this before, but if I'm out cutting my dress, which I plan to do Friday morning, am I bringing glory to God through that? What's that? If you do it well. <laughs> if I do it well. <laughs> well, come, Friday afternoon, come by my house, go and do an evaluation. <laughs> I'm not trying to be facetious. I'm trying to be very serious here. Do we bring glory to God when we're cutting our grass? The answer yes, is yes. yes. Because it intersects with this. God has given you a piece of property. That's how I look at it as a Christian. God has given it to me. He's enabled me to have a position, a job where I can earn, where I can pay the mortgage and all of that. And to live in a country where I can own property. To live in a, a So when he trusts me with this stewardship, then he expects me to take care of it. And when I take care of it, I'm going to take care of it. Now, if I spend 90% of all my income on that piece of property, that, that's out of bounds. That's not moderation. That's excessive. That's indulgence. See, the difference between enjoying and indulgence is a very important issue for the Christian. 
God gives you something, he wants you to enjoy it. He really does. He's not saying, now, I'm giving you this, but don't you dare enjoy it if you don't want to slap your hands. That's not how God is. You read the Old Testament time and time again. He just, he delights in giving the children of Israel everything he promised to them. The land, land flowing with milk and honey, rich in the date palms that they will thoroughly enjoy. The wine that will drip down like it drips like the Mountain Dew drips from Aaron's beard. That's, that's the language of the, of the Psalms. Wine that's delightful and rich. But I'm telling you, don't indulge so much we become drunk, then you're out of control. And you can't control what you're doing. But enjoy. Listen, I'm telling you, the new heaven and new earth. Make that new heaven and new earth. In our resurrected, glorified bodies that we studied in 1 Corinthians, I'm guaranteeing you, we are going to enjoy the bounty of God's physical blessing. I mean that. We're not going to just fly around heaven with harps, and that's not the picture of Isaiah 65 and Revelation 21 and 22. And you and I are the citizens of the new kingdom, with the values of that new kingdom now informing how we live our lives, and this is part of it. So we begin to look at everything in our lives, and land that God gives us, possessions that God gives us, if you spend 90% of your income on clothes, your life out of balance, self-control and moderation no longer characterizes you. These are the values that are all through Scripture because God's world is good. It's under the curse of sin, but it's still good in the sense that you and I are part of the new creation and the values that inform God's perspective are the values that inform our perspective. This is enriching stuff. At least I hope it is enriching stuff. I'm going to pray. Father, it's time to leave and get uh, into our uh, responsibilities the rest of the day. Be with these men. May our study of Ecclesiastes stretch them, make them feel uncomfortable, but also bring resolution and balance, moderation, and a sense of stewardship, and a sense desiring to bring glory to you in everything we do. Lord, you are a good God. Even with the rebellion of the human race, which is so evident in so many areas that we see, your goodness remained because that's why you sent Jesus. That's what the death, burial, and resurrection are all about and what you offer to us in your Son. You offer to us the fullness of life, the promise of eternity, and the capacity to enjoy all of the good gifts that you give us. Lord, we uh, pray you'll help us in each one of our individual lives to apply these thoughts and try to think through, what does this mean to me in my life? Thank you that you are a God who delights in giving good gifts, but also gives us kind of the parameters and ways to help us think about enjoying those good gifts, to focus on bringing honor and glory to you in all that we do help these men in their lives to find that fullness and it all begins with christ but to find that fullness and live it and to represent you well we pray this in your son's name amen see you next week lord willing